Davos's World Economic Forum begins as Klaus Schwab informs the world that the future will be built by him and his friends. Joe Biden frets that he can't unite America while AOC promotes conspiracy theories and Bill Maher speaks truth about trans issues. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Today's show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Thousands of my listeners have already secured their network data. Join them, expressvpn.com slash Ben. We'll get to all the news in just one moment. First, the new numbers are in, and you're not going to believe this. Pure Talk is saving families even more money than previously thought. Listen to this. If you're still with Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile, your family could be saving over $900 a year. So what are you doing? We're in the middle of an inflationary spiral in which your stock prices are going down and things don't look all that great. Why aren't you saving like $900 a year? With Pure Talk, you don't have to compromise. You don't have to compromise coverage with America's most reliable 5G network. You don't compromise on price. You can choose the plan and price right for you. You don't have to compromise on values. You'll be supporting a company whose customer service is right here in the United States and whose CEO proudly served our country. I made the switch. I think you should too. Unlimited talk tech, six gigs of data, just 30 bucks a month, or you can get unlimited data with a hotspot and still save a fortune over the big guys. Go to puretalk.com, select a plan, enter promo code Shapiro, save 50% off your very first month of coverage. You can literally be switched over to Pure Talk service in less than 10 minutes. It's that simple. Go to puretalk.com, enter promo code Shapiro, you can get the same great coverage as one of the big guys, except doing so for a fraction of the cost and not paying for all their bad social media marketing. Head on over to puretalk.com, select a plan, enter promo code Shapiro, save 50% off your very first month. Well, Davos, the elites are meeting over at Davos. When I say elites, I really mean elitists because, listen, I am by pretty much all available metrics elite, meaning I went to an Ivy League law school and I have a really good income and I own a company and all of that. But I don't mean that people who are rich are elites. What I mean are people are elitists. They believe that they ought to run the world. They ought to have power to control your life. And they ought to have that power because they're so good at what they do, because they're so special, because they're so brilliant. They should be able to take control of your life. They are basically just the apotheosis of genius. All public opinion will be telescoped into them personally. They are the apex creatures when it comes to the political system globally. And these are the people who ought to run things. You know, when I went to Harvard Law School, first day, orientation, Elena Kagan was the dean. She now, of course, is on the Supreme Court. And I vividly remember her standing in a giant hall in the middle of the Harvard campus. And the place looked like it was something out of Harry Potter. It was all mahogany and beautiful seats and velvet and all the rest. And she gets up on stage And she says, you guys will be the rulers of the universe. You'll be ruling the world. The people in this room will be on the Supreme Court. They'll be in Congress. They'll be the people in the halls of power. And I thought to myself, why? Because we did really well on the LSAT. Why exactly would that qualify us to be in control? of? Because here's the thing. Most of the systems by which we live are systems that have evolved over time. They've been tried. They have been tested. They have been attempted in a great variety of societies. And then over time, we have evolved into what we are in terms of the systems that we occupy. That doesn't mean that we can't help change those systems or progress those systems. But one of the great sort of chimeras, one of the great mirages of politics is the idea that the crazy idea you have in your head is better than whatever has evolved over time. Because whatever has evolved over time, very often, not always, very often, those things have evolved for a reason. They are a form of tried and tested wisdom. What is in your own head? The the supposed rational idea in your own head, that's never been tried anywhere. And so you actually have to make a very compelling case as to why what was ought to be overthrown in favor of the grand idea that you have concocted inside your own brain. This is the point that Michael Oakeshott makes when he talks about rationalism. We as human beings have a tendency to do things, not because they're rational, but because they're the way that we have been taught or because they're the way that society has imprinted us or the way evolution has changed us. Because of that, We tend to act in a certain way. And then we make up excuses in our own mind for why we do the things that we do. There's a point that Jonathan Haidt has made also with regard to his work in the field of psychology. Very often, the reasons we do things have nothing to do with the actual reasons that we do things. In fact, they've done experiments with people who have had forms of brain damage. What they will do is their brain will be telling them to perform a particular act. And they won't know why they're performing a particular act. It doesn't make sense in context. And then when people are asked, they will immediately shift into trying to explain in a rational way why they are doing what they're doing. They'll just randomly pick up a pen and they'll look down, they'll realize the pen is in their hand and they won't know why there's a pen in their hand. And so they'll be asked, why do you have a pen in your hand? Then they'll make up a giant excuse as to why they have a pen in their hand and, and try to convince themselves basically that this is why things work the way they do. Well, this is the way that elitists think. They think that the systems that have evolved all over the world differently in different places, that all of those systems basically ought to be overthrown 
by them and by their friends because they have high IQ. And I've sat in rooms with people who are like this, who believe that because they are very smart and because they are very good at what they do, because they have risen through the ranks, gone to the best schools, because they got the best grades, because they earn a lot of money, because they do all of these things, they ought to be able to change the systems at will. Not by looking at the things that already exist and then figuring out where we can tinker to make them better, but instead by completely remaking the system to make it fairer and more just. All of these ideas, of course, coming again directly out of their own brain. Their idea of fairness and justice is not generally a well-accepted societal idea of what fairness and justice constitutes. It is instead their own generalized feeling about what society should look like, and they will shape society according to those predilections. And they will do so in the name of you. Right? They will say that you are the ones who want this. This is why, for example, you have Klaus Schwab, who is the head of the World Economic Forum, talking about why he is why people like Klaus Schwab should basically run things. So he said yesterday in what has to count as one of the creepiest clips I've ever seen at the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab said, the future is being built by us. He also said this with a very thick Germanic accent, which makes it really weird and creepy. Here we go. The future is not just happening. The future is built by us, by a powerful community as you here in this room. We have the means to improve the states of the world. That is an incredible statement. The future is built by us, with the fist and everything. By us, it's built by us. You will obey. You will enjoy our rulership because we are very wise. And we have the power in this room, among the communities, the very community, to change how the world works. Now, your people, yeah, but we in this room are very smart. We have power ties on. We wear $1,000 suits. And this explains, because we run major corporations and because we run governments, how we will be able to change the world to make it a great, better place for you. Right? This, is, this is backed by his general feeling about how systems of economics should work. Already coming up more from Klaus Schwab on what the future should look like. We'll get to that in just one moment first. And when I climb on my bed at night, it's not just that I have a great mattress. It's also that I have the world's best sheets. I'm talking about bowl and branch sheets. They're not just buttery, breathable, impossibly comfortable. They get softer with every wash. So a lot of people will tell you about thread count. Thread count don't mean anything. And go down to your local gas station, pick up a 1 million thread count sheet, and then you get on and it's actually just a tarp. Bowl and branch is going to give you thread quality. It doesn't matter how many threads your sheets have, if they're not good threads. Instead, head on over to bowlandbranch.com right now. Get their signature hem sheets. They're a bestseller for a reason. Bowl and branch uses the highest quality threads on planet Earth for a superior softness and a better night's sleep. These are sheets made with threads so luxurious they are beloved by three United States presidents. They feel buttery to the touch. They're super breathable. They're perfect for every season. And by the way, their hem sheets actually fit your bed properly. One of those irritating things is when you have the sheets that don't fit your mattress right. And then you wake up in the middle of the night, you're facing on the mattress like, ugh. Bowling Branch ain't gonna happen. Bowling Branch is just great. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code Shapiro at bowlandbranch.com. Again, that's bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, bowlandbranch.com, promo code Shapiro. Back in 2020, October 2020, he wrote an entire piece at Klaus Schwab titled, A Better Economy is Possible, But We Need to Reimagine Capitalism to Do It. By reimagining capitalism, he means that he should be able to pick and choose winners and losers, and he should be able to dictate the rules of the game to everybody else. See, the thing about capitalism is F.A. Hayek, who's probably the greatest expositor of capitalism in human history, as, as F.A. Hayek wrote, capitalism is not a system that was quote-unquote designed. Capitalism is a system that arose over the course of centuries to allow people to keep the fruits of their own labors and then freely trade the fruits of their own labors. It's an evolutionary system. It's not something that people got in a back room and they're like, how do we benefit a small cadre of society? That's how Marxists think of capitalism. They think of a bunch of old white people smoking cigars in the back room, figuring out how they keep their own property. And then they came up with this system called free markets. This is what the Marxists think. In the same way that racial Marxists like Ibram X. Kendi think that free speech was a concoction by old white men in order to protect their own political prerogatives. But that's not how any of this works. Free speech evolved through centuries of Western discourse based on battling and, and a generalized assumption, correct, that if you didn't have the ability to speak freely or to dissent, that it would eventually dissolve into internecine warfare, like full-scale 100 years warfare, 30 years warfare, right? That's what would happen. And so we need free speech. We need to allow people to dissent. When it comes to markets, same sort of thing. Over the course of centuries, there's a basic understanding that comes to be that we are better off allowing people to keep the fruits of their own labor and to freely alienate, to trade the fruits of their own labor with one another. That's not something that somebody came up with in a back room. Adam Smith didn't invent capitalism. 
F.A. Hayek didn't invent capitalism. They noticed a thing that was going on, and then they provided a rationalistic basis for the thing that was going on that actually did match what was going on in the real world. But Klaus Schwab thinks that he should be able to design systems. People who think they should be able to design systems are the last people who should be in charge of anything. Because typically speaking, the world is not a computer. People are not widgets. And the attempt to design systems for people top-down in centralized fashion is not only a failure, it typically ends with tyrannical failure. So here's what Klaus Schwab writes. And I'm, I'm talking about this because, again, Davos is happening right now. And these are the rules of the world community that are going to be set and have a major impact on how all of us live. Klaus Schwab wrote this back in October of 2020. In the immediate months that followed the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic, the world as we knew it was turned upside down. Like most people, I was constrained to observing the situation from inside my home and the World Economic Forum's empty offices. And I relied on video calls to know how others were doing. Since those early moments of the crisis, it has been hard to be optimistic about the prospect of a brighter global future. The only immediate upside, perhaps, was the drop in greenhouse gas emissions, which brought slight temporary relief to the planet's atmosphere. It shouldn't have come as a surprise that many started to wonder, will governments, businesses, and other influential stakeholders truly change their ways for the better after this, or will we go back to business as usual? Now, this language of stakeholders is a proxy for me and my friends. Okay, because normally, if you're the head of a corporation, you're answerable to creating a profit margin for the people who own shares in your company, which is good. It gives you a metric of success, as Milton Friedman suggested. Shareholder capitalism is the idea that you as a company need to take the interests of the people who actually own the company, the shareholders, into account, and then maximize your pursuit of making goods and services that people want to buy at the highest available profit margin. And this is your mission. Stakeholder capitalism is something else. Stakeholder capitalism is the idea that boards of directors should basically ignore their own shareholders in favor of people who don't have skin in the game, in favor of people who don't own stock, who aren't going to pay the price. Those people, you're, you're supposed to make policy on their behalf. So now you are not answerable to your own shareholders. You're answerable to the world at large, which really means you're answerable to nobody because the world at large can't vote you out of position as the, head of a C, as the CEO of a major corporation. So when you say stakeholder, what you really mean is appointed king by nobody. But you get to claim that you're acting in everybody's interest. You're a benevolent dictator without answerability to your own shareholders, because after all, you're taking into account stakeholders beyond your own shareholders. So here is what Klaus Schwab wrote. He said, it's true, there are no easy ways out of this vicious cycle, even though the mechanisms to do so lie at our fingertips. Every day we invent new technologies that could make our lives and the planet's health better. Free markets, trade and competition create so much wealth that in theory, they could make everyone better off if there was the will to do so. But this is not the reality we live in today. And so one of the great dangers of the elitists, the people at Davos and company, is they always make it seem, always, that because they are high IQ, they have all the solutions. And if they have all the solutions, the only thing that separates us from utopia is the will to power. That's it. If you just had the will, if the American people, if the people of the globe more broadly could just access that will, then we could change the situation and utopia would arise. It's not a question of us not being able to do the things that we claim that we're able to do. It's not a question of the experts ever being wrong. It's always a question of just the willpower. And we see this in everything from COVID-19 policy to economic policy to international warfare. When it comes to the great geniuses in the room, they propose solutions. Their solutions generally fail because they are not in consonance with human nature or how people actually work. And then when they fail, you get blamed because it was just that the will wasn't there, guys. If we had just tried harder, we could have fixed everything. So instead of Klaus Schwab saying, listen, free markets, trade and competition are creating an enormous amount of wealth. Maybe those things which are inherently decentralized. Free trade is inherently decentralized. Free markets, inherently decentralized, right? That is the, the they are, they're a leveling mechanism. Free markets are a leveling mechanism. It means there is no person at the top determining who wins and who loses. We all just go to work every day and then things shake out how they're gonna shake out. That is a leveling mechanism. It has created more wealth than any system in human history and it has evolved to affect more and more in the globe in extraordinarily positive ways. Instead of saying, maybe if we gave up more control, Things would get better for everybody. It's if we could only harness the power of the 1.21 gigawatts of the global economy and then channel it into the flux capacitor, everything would be fine. And all it takes to make all of that happen is just Zeville. If we only had Zeville, then that would make things happen. More power to us. That's the only way you can manifest Zeville. After all, you can't do anything. You're, you're smart people. But we, we here at the center, you manifest your power by giving us the power. You show your will by giving us the power. Together, will power, will power. That will solve all the problems. Already more from Klaus Schwab and how we should rule the future in just one second. First, did you know that poor sleep can cause weight gain, mood issues, poor mental health, and lower productivity? 
Uh, I knew this. And the reason I knew this is because my kids give me poor sleep quality sometimes. Well, some reports say sleeping less than six to seven hours per night is linked to reduced white blood cell counts. White blood cells are what protects your body against illness and disease. Not a lot of people realize this. Having a consistent nighttime routine is really important because, you know, having a great day, it really relies on you having a pretty good night's sleep. Introducing Beam Dream. Beam is one of the world's most innovative functional wellness brands with unique products for everything from sleep to focus. Today, my listeners get a special discount available for Beam's sleep product, Dream Powder, their best-selling hot cocoa. It contains premium ingredients, triple lab tested, and you're going to wake up refreshed. 98% of people surveyed fall asleep faster when taking Beam Dream. 99% of people experience better sleep quality. Just mix Beam Dream into hot water or milk. Stir. Enjoy before bedtime. Bradford, our producer, let me tell you, he used to be an unproductive rube. Now, he's he's a machine. And the reason he's a machine is because he's actually getting sleep because he is using Beam Dream. If you don't love it, you can get your money back guaranteed. For a limited time, get up to 35% off when you go to shopbeam.com slash Ben. Use code Ben at checkout. Again, that's shopbeam.com slash Ben. Use code Ben for up to 35% off. According to Klaus Schwab, Technological advances often take place in a monopolized economy and are used to prioritize one company's profits over societal progress. Well, I mean, the way that you develop technologies is through the profit margin. They do not get built absent the profit margin. Either that or they are built by states, which then tend to use them in ways that benefit only the state and nobody else. The same economic system that created so much prosperity in the golden age of American capitalism in the 50s and 60s is now creating inequality and climate change. That, that is an absurd contention. It's an absurd contention because he's correct that the same economic system that created all that prosperity in the 50s and 60s exists today. It's created all the prosperity today also. We lifted literally half the world's population was in pure abject poverty in 1980 and is not today because of those systems that he didn't control. He says the same political system that enabled our global progress and democracy after World War II now contributes to societal discord and discontent. And so we have to change things, of course. He says... If you look at how we did COVID-19, man, we did great. We did great. He said there was strong cooperation between governments and businesses to secure the funds needed for vaccine development and distribution. Okay, that was an emergency situation in which the government basically said, try a vaccine. If it fails, we'll still pay for it because we need to get through this. Okay, that was good. That was necessary. That is not true in every area of the economy. What that ends with is the kind of subsidization of industry that is sinking China's economy right now. But that's exactly what Klaus Schwab calls for. He says, looking forward, such virtuous instincts can become a feature of our economic systems rather than a rare exception. Rather than chasing short-term profits or narrow self-interest, companies could pursue the well-being of all people and the entire planet. Which again is a way of saying, give us all the power and we will take care of all of you. That's all. We'll be benevolent dictators in your life. That's what we'll do. Building a virtuous economic system is not a utopian ideal, says Klaus Schwab. And this is from October 2020. Most people, including business leaders, investors, and community leaders, have a similar attitude about their role in the world and the lives of others. Most people want to do good and believe that doing so will ultimately benefit everyone, including a company's shareholders. But what's missing in recent decades is a clear compass to guide those in leading positions in our society and economy. And so what we need is to move away from that. We need a more virtuous capitalist system. We need stakeholder capitalism metrics, non-financial metrics, disclosures that will be added to companies' annual reporting, making it possible to measure their progress over time. Doing so requiring, requires answering questions like, what is the gender pay gap inside companies? How many people of diverse backgrounds were hired and promoted? What progress has the company made toward reducing greenhouse gas emissions? How much did the company pay in taxes globally and per jurisdiction? What did the company do to hire and train employees? Again, this is all top-down we're going to control it. We have to create utopia because we are the powerful nonsense. Instead of just letting the market shake things out because it turns out that the collective knowledge of human beings is far wider and broader and deeper than the individual knowledge of centralized decision makers. Instead of acknowledging that, Klaus Schwab is doubling down on the idea that the geniuses ought to be in control. And very often this is what happens at places like the World Economic Forum. Right? Davos is centered on the theme this year of history at a turning point, government policies and business strategies. A variety of issues will be tackled according to Fox Business, including the COVID-19 pandemic, global conflict, economic uncertainty, and climate change. U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry, NATO Gen Secretary General Jans Stoltenberg, and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen are expected to deliver remarks at the five-day event. The war in Ukraine and the resulting tragedy calls for global moral action, says Gail Markovitz and Beatrice DeCaro of the World Economic Forum. Leaders will address urgent humanitarian and security challenges as they simultaneously advance long-standing economic, environmental, and societal priorities. Mm. Whose priorities will those be, precisely? See, here in the United States, we have a thing called democracy. We get to vote for our priorities. But who votes for the priorities of the World Economic Forum? Exactly. 
Who decides what those priorities should be? They say, sort of at Woodrow Wilson once said that the Constitution was completely defunct. It was useless. And what you needed at the heart of the American experiment was a big man, a man who could capture all of the inherent will of the American people, bring all the will of the American people to the forefront. And that was best epitomized by the president of the United States, a central, powerful figure. And this is what you see over at the World Economic Forum. And this is what the future would be built by them. Well, here's the problem. The people who are talking about building our future scare the living hell out of me, and they should scare the living hell out of you. For example, yesterday at Davos, the Australian e-safety commissioner, Inman Grant, said that, you know, it's time for us to globally recalibrate what free speech means. Again, notice, this is not a broadening of freedom. This is a narrowing of freedom so that elites like Inman Grant, elitists like Inman Grant, can decide what you ought to be able to say. We are finding ourselves in a place um, where we're, we have increasing polarization <laughs> everywhere. And everything feels binary when it doesn't need to be. So I think we're going to have to think about a recalibration of a whole range of human rights that are playing out online, you know, from freedom of speech to the freedom to, you know, to be free from on online violence or the uh, right of data protection to the right to child dignity. Okay, what, what she's saying right there with all of these very wise people sitting there. I mean, literally King Solomon is sitting right next to her. When people who are sitting there nodding along. You know, when, when you speak with a lot of people who believe themselves to be high IQ, in control, and they say, we, we ought to recalibrate things like free speech. You didn't invent free speech. No one gave you the power to recalibrate free speech. The fact that you're talking about doing this on an international stage with a lot of people who disagree about the limits of free speech should be a clue that this is, this is scary stuff. Whenever you have these international institutions that get together, you know, there's a, um, a famous line from a Leon Uris book uh, in which he says that international law is that which the virtuous studiously ignore and the evil just ditch. That's basically the idea, is that if you're, that the, the virtuous refuse to enforce it, international law, because in, enforcing it actually requires cost, and the evil simply ignore. But what international law really does is it sets a backdrop against which all global conversation is now supposed to happen. That's really what these international institutions are about. Because again, all this has to be implemented top down in these countries by separate governments. All the acts have to then be adopted. But the goal is to reshift the Overton window in terms of what is acceptable and what we should all be striving for. And that's why these international convocations are really quite frightening in the way they address these issues. And we should be a little frightened of them. Already in just one second, we are going to get to the London School of Economics writing about what the WHO is doing in terms of this pandemic treaty first. You're spending a lot of money on gas right now, like a lot of money. I filled up the tank the other day and it cost me like well over $100. It's just crazy, which is one reason why I'm using that free upside app. You should be too. My listeners are earning cash back for every gallon of gas every time they fill up. Just download that free upside app in the App Store or Google Play right now. Use promo code Shapiro for 25 cents per gallon or more on your first fill up cash back. Do not pay full price at the pump anymore. Get cash back using upside. Download that app for free. Use promo code Shapiro for 25 cents per gallon or more on your first tank. You can earn cash back at grocery stores, restaurants, and with takeout too. In cash out any time to your bank account, PayPal, or an e-gift card for Amazon and other brands, just download that free Upside app. Use promo code Shapiro. Get 25 cents per gallon or more cash back on your very first tank. Again, use promo code Shapiro right now. That is promo code Shapiro right now when you use that free Upside app. And when you use that promo code, you're going to get 25 cents per gallon or more cash back on your first tank. It's doing more for you when it comes to the gas prices than the Biden administration is doing. Get that Upside app today. Promo code Shapiro, 25 cents per gallon or more cash back on your very first tank of gas. Which brings us to the WHO. So there has been a lot of talk about the WHO proposing a new pandemic treaty. And it's not clear what the hell is going to be in this thing. It's supposed to be a global pandemic treaty. There's a piece over at the London School of Economics from a wide variety of sources. Makey Voss, Claire Wenham, Mark Eccleston Turner, Bianca Dettering. March 30th, 2022, a new pandemic treaty, what the World Health Organization needs to do next. Well, some would say that the World Health Organization needs to be disbanded and that you need an actual League of Democracies to enforce its will when it comes to information sharing. The WHO has been an enormous failure. And they literally had one job, to stop a global pandemic. Not only did they fail to stop that, they also provided cover for the world's most evil government at this point, the Chinese government, which engages in vast human rights privations, which steals technology, steals intellectual property, massively expands its military footprint, subjects a billion people to, to abject tyranny. And the WHO just bent over backwards for those people and lied on their behalf. But the WHO now wants to draw some new international rules. Now, those international rules, it's not clear how, quote unquote, binding they're going to be. 
Okay, because when it comes to international treaties, typically the way that it works in American domestic law, there are two types of international agreements. There's executive agreements, and then you have treaties. Treaties are how all international agreements are theoretically supposed to be done. If you read the treaty clause of the United States Constitution, typically what you're supposed to do is submit to the Senate for two-thirds approval any treaty that you sign with a foreign country. However, of late, of late I mean by the last 50 years or so, what instead you have is presidents who just adopt executive agreements. And then the idea is that we are going to have congressional legislation with a simple majority vote that is called enabling legislation that basically just crams down the treaty provisions on the American domestic political scenes. You no longer have to get two-thirds approval. Now 50 plus one will do it. Okay, but even putting aside the advice and consent of the Senate, even putting aside the, the enabling legislation that is necessary to effectuate international law on the domestic stage, even if you put all of that aside, what you end up with, with these international agreements, is a moral suasion, right? That's what they are designed to do. They're designed to create a moral suasion to try to commit the American people to these, inter after all, we made an international agreement. Sure, we never actually ratified it, but we had that international agreement and we've betrayed that. Perfect example, the Kyoto Protocol adopted in 1997 was all about global warming. The United States never actually adopted the Kyoto Protocol. The Kyoto Treaty never became law in the United States. It was not voted up or down by the Senate. The Senate rejected it when it was given the opportunity to look at it, but it did become the basis for all future agreements made by the United States when it came to global warming. And that's what happens with a lot of these international agreements. The president goes and signs something. He gets a big photo op. It never gets adopted as American law. But then it is used as the basis for American policy anyway. Or they'll adopt an executive agreement like the Iran agreement. And it becomes the basis for American foreign policy without ever having been approved by the Senate, for example. That sort of stuff is pretty, pretty common in American law, unfortunately. So when we talk about a WHO pandemic treaty, Understand that when people say things like correctly, like this thing is not self-effectuating, it would require enabling legislation in order to go forward. That's true. It is also true that it will serve as the basis for all discussion, as the basis for all commitment keeping for the next 10, 15, 20 years. So what exactly will be in this thing? According to the London School of Economics, a draft text is expected August 1, 2022. To get there, a member state-led, transparent, inclusive, and fair procedure is necessary with full participation of all member states with meaningful inclusion of non-state actors. The treaty is expected to be modeled as a framework convention complemented by additional instruments like protocols, guidelines, or standards for adoption by governance bodies created through the treaty. This approach allows parties to reach consensus on high-level legally binding principles and commitments within the initial convention, i.e. the meaning of equity or solidarity in a health emergency, and states that parties give a commitment to act in solidarity during such an emergency, followed by agreements, adding detailed commitments regarding operationalizing these commitments, i.e. a protocol regarding pathogen sharing or one on equitable access to vaccines, et cetera. So, for example, one of the things that they're now considering under the WHO is that we have to tranche out, let's say we create a vaccine here in the United States. We have to tranche that out in equitable fashion around the globe. Well, if you're an American citizen, the first thing you should be thinking is, wait, hold up. If we develop a vaccine, shouldn't we get first crack at it? Let's say it takes all of the vaccine in order to inoculate our population. We're American citizens. We're the ones who are footing the bill for creating the vaccine. Shouldn't we get it first? Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't help out other countries. And there may be situations in which it is vital that we help out other countries. But why should we be treaty bound to do that? Shouldn't that be a case by case? Let's analyze the situation situ thing. Instead, the idea is that we are going to pre-write into a code that is not fully adopted into American law, but serves as the basis for all discussion. And you're going to have future Democratic presidents, presumably, who are going to cite this as a rationale for doing these sorts of things unilaterally, because foreign policy very rarely gets done via legislation anymore. It mostly gets done via executive branch action. They'll sign an agreement that's non-binding, and then they will say that they are bound by the agreement that is non-binding. That is what usually happens in cases like this. So what exactly are they looking at? According to the London School of Economics, the thematic wishes include anchoring the treaty in human rights, addressing the principles of the right to health, equity, solidarity, transparency, trust, and accountability. Now, if that all sounds incredibly vague to you, that's because it is incredibly vague. But those are just buzzwords that will then be used in order to cram down things that Americans may not like on Americans. Using a One Health approach for, for pandemic prevention and early detection, stronger health systems information and reporting mechanisms, including a better use of digital technology for data collection and sharing, a reform of the WHO alarm mechanism, Investments in health system strengthening, increased financing for pandemic preparedness and response. So much is being touted for inclusion that achieving it all seems unlikely. But there will be consensus on things like vaccine distribution. Now, there again, there's some people who are going overboard on this and saying, well, you know, inherent, we haven't even read what this document looks like, that this is going to be the basis for some sort of grand kind of lockdown crackdown, basically, 
that there'll be an international agreement where in violation of American law, a president just decides internationally, we're now going to lockdown. That would still require the president to make an independent decision to lockdown. It's not like an international body free of the president of the United States could say, everybody's locking down. And the president goes, well, you know, I'm trumped now. I mean, there's an international, but he could theoretically say that, right? He wouldn't be bound by law. There's no enforcement mechanism. What's the WHO going to do? Invade? We fund them. It's not going to happen. But what you could have, and this is most likely, is an international agreement. We're all locking down. The president says, hey, part of that international agreement, it's my excuse for locking down. It's my excuse. It is my justification. We signed this international agreement. So when people say there's no enforcement mechanism, that's true so far as it goes. It's just not the whole story. Now, the WHO director general, who's an I mean, just awful at his job, again, Chinese defending Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. He says, you know what? Our agenda is open. You guys are scaremongering about all of this. Anytime you have international leaders get together and say that they're going to create an international treaty and that it's not fully enforcing, it's not self-enforcing, but it is setting a set of standards that we all ought to aim toward, understand that is the predicate to action. There's no other reason to do it. If it doesn't do anything, why are you doing it? Here is the WHO director. I want to be crystal clear. WHO's agenda is public open and transparent. WHO stands strongly for individual rights. We passionately support everyone's right to health and we will do everything we can to ensure that the right is realized. Okay, um, well, no, you, you don't support that, which is why the WHO again covered for the Chinese government. Meanwhile, the WHO Director General, he also said, we are building an overarching global legal framework. So again, if you're not building anything, why do you say you're building something? We need adequate and efficient financing domestically and internationally. We need a stronger and sustainably financed WHO at the center of the global health security architecture. And I will return to this in a few moments. Again, yeah, when, when all these folks get together, very rarely something good happens. And meanwhile, speaking of wealth redistribution over at Davos, Oxfam spoke, the international charity, and they said it was time for a global wealth tax to support the less fortunate. At one time, global wealth tax, they, they never mean one time. According to Oxfam Executive Director Gabriel Boucher, quote, billionaires are arriving in Davos to celebrate an incredible surge in their fortunes. The pandemic and now the steep increase in food and energy prices have simply been put a bonanza for them. Well, I mean, that's weird because most of the people who are heavily invested in the stock market took a massive hit over the course of the last couple of months. Meanwhile, decades of progress on extreme poverty are now in reverse. Millions of people are facing impossible rises in the cost of simply staying alive. Oxfam called for a one-off solidarity tax on billionaires' pandemic windfall to support people facing soaring prices, as well as to fund a fair and sustainable recovery from the pandemic. Again, centralized government being called for by Oxfam, complete redistribution of wealth. This is what it means when you have all of these elitists get together in a room. And unfortunately, this is what you get when you have elitists on the American stage. Right? The, the, the generalized mechanism by which the left wishes to effectuate its policy in the United States looks somewhat similar to the international mechanisms that are being forwarded by people like Klaus Schwab or like the head of WHO. The idea is give us all the power and then all that separates us from utopia is the will to do what is necessary. Why won't everyone get out of our Why won't there be unity? So you remember when President Biden took office, he gave this, this long speech, this long flowing speech about unity. He was going to come in. He was going to restore unity. The, the, American, the American bargain is fine. People, it's, it's fraying, folks, it's fraying. Everything's fraying. And we, unification, uniformity. And what he meant by that, I said at the time, it's unclear whether by unity he means we have a few things we agree on and then we agree to disagree on many things, or if he meant shut up and do what I say. It is now increasingly clear that Joe Biden means shut up and do what I say. And then he is surprised when people don't like the things that he says because many of them are stupid or bad or their policies do not achieve what they seek to achieve. We'll get to that in just a moment. First, if you have a small business, inflation is not doing you any favors right now. You need to save money. This is one reason you should be using stamps.com. We here at The Daily Wire, we're smart. We've been using stamps.com since 2017. We will not waste our time. Stamps.com allows you to mail and ship and get access to exclusive discounts and great rates on shipping from USPS and UPS. It's an easy way to keep more money in your pocket. Stamps.com will save you time, money, and stress. For more than 20 years, Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses. Stamps.com gives you access to all the post office and UPS shipping services you need right from your computer. And you can get discounts you can't find anywhere else, like up to 30% off USPS rates and 86% off UPS. No matter what business you are in, Stamps.com can help you save on shipping. Whether you're an office sending invoices or an Etsy shop sending your products or a warehouse shipping out truckloads of orders, Stamps.com is the mailing and shipping solution for you. 
Sell from multiple stores, no problem. Stamps.com works with Shopify, Amazon, Etsy, eBay, pretty much all of them. Start mailing and shipping with Stamps.com today. Keep more money in your pocket every day. Sign up with promo code Shapiro for a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and digital scale. No long-term commitments, no contracts. Just head on over to Stamps.com, click that microphone at the top of the page, enter a code Shapiro. Alrighty, folks. Well, as you know by now, the event of the summer, backstage live at the Ryman. We are back, better than ever, June 29th at the historic Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee. Due to historic demand, we've opened up some more tickets to the event, so there's still time to get in on the fun and watch your favorite Daily Wire host, you know, me, live and unfiltered. What is Backstage Live like? Glad you asked. Check it out. Welcome to the Daily Wire Backstage Live at the famous Ryman Auditorium. It was amazing. We were in the presence of greatness. The energy of having everyone on the same page was amazing. If your family member is still waiting for Fauci to give them permission, to leave their house, it might be time to cut that off. <laughs> I'm actually pretty excited to meet all of them. I love everybody's opinion individually. I don't have a favorite, I like them all. If I had found out a way to make football players cry in high school, my high school experience would be a lot. <laughs> I'm just excited to be here and be surrounded by like-minded people and to just, you know, feel that energy. Who should we remove from office? Yeah, you one politician, one. the most powerful politician in the country. <laughs> Dr. Fauci, what are you talking about? We're doing culture here. I'm so thrilled to see this happening. If they say to half of the country, you can't, that half of the country needs to say, screw you, we will. Backstage Live happens right here in Nashville on June 29th. Get your tickets now. This year, we are going even bigger, hopefully without Michael Knowles and Jeremy Boring playing music. I keep hoping that's not going to happen, and then I think it'll probably happen. Get your tickets for Backstage Live today at dailywire.com slash Ryman. You're not going to want to miss it. Got some surprises for you. You're listening to the largest, fastest-growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. So Joe Biden came into office saying, I want unity, but also I want to build back better, right? Which sounds exactly like Klaus Schwab. I'm going to build back better. I'm going to take all of these powerful forces in American life. I'm going to channel them toward what I want. I'm going to channel them in a way that makes the world a better place. And I know this because in my adult brain, that basically looks like an Atari game from 1987 in there. You have to like take out the cartridge from the Nintendo and you have to like blow it just to make sure that it still works. Right? This is how it works in it. In that brain, I know the solutions. And when people don't give me what I want, I get very, very upset. So... I think the leading indicator of this is how Joe Biden thinking comes from a column by Thomas Friedman, who is one of the worst columnists in America and has been for several decades at this point. Basically, Thomas Friedman's formula in every column is, I went to an exotic place. Someone put me up at a hotel and I talked to the cab driver. Here is my deep insight. That's pretty much all of his columns. I talked to the cab driver in Tunisia, and that's when I realized that the smells of turmeric were really indicative of the world economy. Now, I was in Iran the other day, staying at the beautiful hotel in downtown Tehran, and I realized that this was a people, blah, blah, blah. Right? That, that's always what, so he had lunch with Biden. And so he writes about this because all Thomas Friedman is is the obnoxious neighbor who just won't stop name dropping. It's all he does. He just name drops all day long. Like, you know, I was at the ballpark the other day and I was sitting in my luxury suite and Klaus Schwab walked in. It was unbelievable. We had a great conversation because, you know, me and Klaus were like best friends. I mean, look on my cell phone, right? I just texted him like two minutes ago. That is Thomas Friedman. So my lunch with President Biden, quote, President Biden invited me for lunch at the White House last Monday, but it was all off the record. So I can't tell you anything he said. So what are you writing about this for? Who gives a shit? Like, what? Like, who does? He's just a dumbass, Tom Friedman. Well, you know, I was speaking with the president of the United States, but what we talked about was super secret. So I'm mentioning it just to show you that I know an important person, but uh, I can't tell you what he said. But now I'm going to tell you a little what he said. I can tell you two things, what I ate and how I felt after. I didn't realize that we were going to get a, a full-on column about your digestive tract, but here we go. I ate a tuna salad sandwich with tomato on whole wheat bread with a bowl of mixed fruit and a chocolate milkshake for dessert that was so good, it should have been against the law. Wow, well. You know, that changes everything right there. What I felt afterward was this. For all you knuckleheads on Fox who say that Biden can't put two sentences together, here's a newsflash. He just put NATO together, Europe together, the whole Western alliance together, stretching from Canada up to Finland all the way to Japan to help Ukraine protect its fledgling democracy from Vladimir Putin's fascist assault. In doing so, he has enabled Ukraine to inflict significant losses on Russia's invading... Okay, can I just point out that Joe Biden brought up the rear on every one of these issues for like several weeks here? I mean, I'm... I actually like what he's done on Ukraine for the most part, but to pretend that he is the one who mobilized like Japan and Britain is silly. It's ridiculous. And Finland is applying for NATO membership because they border Russia, you idiot. 
But you did have a tuna salad sandwich with the president of the United States. And then you watched him poop in his depends or something. It has been the best performance of alliance management and consolidation since another president whom I covered and admired, who is also said to be incapable of putting two sentences together, George H.W. Bush. Alas, though, I left our lunch with a full stomach, but a heavy heart. Oh, this guy, I think he's one, he's one of Pulitzer, Tom Friedman. A full stomach, but a heavy heart. How'd your kidney feel, dude? Is that appendix doing all right? I won't, I, won't, like, I, won't, I won't consider this column a success unless I get a full description of the functioning of each of his internal organs. We went to a CAT scan with Tom Friedman, and here's what we found out about the Lebanese trade policy. So Biden didn't say it in so many words, but he didn't have to. I could hear it between the lines. He's worried that while he has reunited the West, he may not be able to reunite America. He didn't reunite the West. Vladimir Putin reunited the West in the same way that, that the Iranians reunited the Middle East against Iran. Like, okay. He may not be able to reunite America, but this is, this is the key, right? So Thomas Friedman is where it comes down to the Build Back Better agenda, the Klaus Schwab. It's all the same. It's a bunch of elitists who think they ought to control your life. And if you refuse to acquiesce to this control, this means that you are an evil, bad center who just doesn't wish to access the willpower that will allow us to reach unicorn farting energy utopia. It's you, not him, not you, not the doddering old fool in the White House who literally every day says something his own White House comms shop has to then walk back. The night the night nurse team. Not, it's, not, it's not him. It's not that he inherited a vaccine and he inherited an economy on the upswing and he inherited peace in the Middle East and then he blew all of it. It's not that he did any of that. It's you. It's you and you're, you're being mean to the old man. Stop being mean to the old man and let him drink his insure in peace while he unites America and the West. He is in fact a godlike figure. Joe Biden, according to Thomas Friedman, who knows because he had a tuna sandwich at the White House with a chocolate milkshake. Quote, it's clearly his priority above any Build Back Better provision. And he knows that's why he was elected. A majority of Americans worried that the country was coming apart at the seams and that this old war horse called Biden with his bipartisan instincts was the best person to knit us back together. It's the reason he decided to run in the first place because he knows that without some basic unity of purpose and willingness to compromise, nothing else is possible. Is that why he decided to run? Is that also why he decided to run in 1988 and also in 2008 and also then again in 2020? It, like, it was all about unity, was it? It wasn't about his desire for power, like since he was 30 years old and in the United States Senate. He literally entered the United States Senate when he was too young to enter the United States Senate. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not that, Tom. Anyway, he says, with every passing day, with every mass shooting, every racist dog whistle, every defund the police initiative, every nation sundering Supreme Court ruling, every speaker run off a of campus, every claim of election fraud, I wonder if he can bring us back together. I wonder if it's too late. I fear we're going to break something very valuable very soon. Once we break it, it will be gone. You may never be able to get it back. I'm talking about our ability to transfer power peacefully and legitimately, an ability we have demonstrated since our founding. It is one thing to elect Donald Trump and pro-Trump candidates who want to restrict immigration, ban abortion, slash corporate taxes, pump more oil, curb sex education in schools, and liberate citizens from mask mandates in a pandemic. Those are policies where there can be legitimate disagreement, which is the stuff of politics. Okay, we can stop right there for a second because it is important to note that on every one of those issues, people who disagree with Thomas Friedman have been demonized as hellspawn. If you are a pro-life person in this country, you have been demonized as a person who wants to murder women by the mainstream left. If you're a person who does not want sex education about gender theory taught to kindergartners, you have been labeled a homophobe and a bigot. If you're a person in this country who said that, Mask mandates and lockdowns post-vaccination were bad. You have been labeled as someone who wanted to kill grandma and your own child. There was going to be a winter of death for people who disagreed with Joe Biden on these issues. So don't lecture us about unity. What they mean by unity is you have to agree with us. You have to agree with us. So he suggests, does Thomas Friedman, he says, Allied leaders have privately said to Biden as he and his team have revived the Western alliance from the splintered pieces that Trump left it in. Thank God America is back. And then they add, but for how long? Biden can't answer that question because we, capital W, capital E, we cannot answer that question. Biden is not blameless in this dilemma, nor is the Democratic Party, particularly its far left wing. Under pressure to revive the economy facing big ticket demands from the far left, Biden pursued expansive spending for too long. House Democrats also sullied one of Biden's most important bipartisan achievements making it hostage to other excessive spending demands. The far left saddled Biden and every Democratic candidate with radical notions like defund the police. To, to defeat Trumpism, we need only, say, 10% of Republicans to abandon their party and join with a central-left Biden, which is what he was elected to be and still is at heart. But we may not be able to get even 1% of Republicans to shift if far-left Democrats are seen as the party's defining feature. That is why I left my lunch with the president with a full stomach, 
but a heavy heart. I love the fact that he repeats that twice in the same column. His full stomach, he was so clever, he had to say it twice. Okay, but here's the thing. What Joe Biden really means is shut up and agree with me. Shut up and agree with me. And this, unfortunately, is what many Democrats at this point, I don't think mainstream people who voted for Democrats believe this. I think many of them are willing to live with their neighbors. But the mainstream Democratic Party increasingly does not believe that. They believe that people who disagree with them are threats to the world order. They're the people who are stopping the ascension of utopia. They, they, are, they are preventing all of us from living a better life. And if only they would shut up and do what we want, then everything would be better, which is why they have to be demonized. It's why we have to lie about what they back. It's why we have to pretend that they're trying to suborn the vote. It's why we have to pretend that they are racist, sexist, bigot, homophobes for doubting things like illegal immigration or wondering why it is that we should teach that boys are not boys and girls are not girls and everybody can be pansexual. Those people have to be treated as, as the worst among us. That is the only way that we can achieve true unity. Because in the end, when the elitists are scorned, they must have their revenge. Either you have to shut up or they have to stop claiming that they have the will of the people behind them. So you can guess which one of those they support. Okay, so a perfect example of the elitists is the irrepressibly imbecilic Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. She truly is a whirlwind of stupidity. This human being who is in fact an elitist, and I say an elitist not because, again, I don't consider being wealthy to be a, a referendum on your moral value. I don't think that if you're poor, you're a good person, or if you're rich, you're a bad person. Likewise, I do not believe that if you're rich, you're a good person. If you're poor, you're a bad person. I think there are good and bad people in every income class. I also think they're elitists in every income class, meaning there are people who believe that they ought to control your life in every mode and fashion from the top down. And they ought to do so because they are smarter and better equipped and fairer and better people than you. And those people exist at every class. And that is not just rich people. It happens to be rich people in Davos, but it also happens to be not so rich people like AOC, who believes that because she has a misbegotten degree in economics from Boston University, they should revoke that degree immediately because that sucker apparently you can get in any, with every five Cracker Jack box tops or something. and comes along with a secret Red Rider decoder ring is that degree from Boston University in econ. If, if AOC can have it, man, this is a great country. Everyone can have a degree in economics from Boston University, apparently. So AOC, she, uh, she did another one of her Instagram live streams, which by the way, is now the job of our Congress people. Congress, as Yuval Levin has pointed out, is no long, it's no longer a place for the deliberative consideration of legislation. It is now a platform for people to get more famous and raise a lot of money for themselves and become personas. So Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, whose main job consists of co-sponsoring legislation that will never pass and crying in photo ops and also doing Instagram lives. This is, this is her entire job. She did an Instagram live the other day where she, I think, really exposed what a lot of your elitist Democrats think about you. They think that everyone who opposes them is part of a global conspiracy to harm them. That is, that is what they think. Now, I think that there are a lot of people on the left who oppose me on taxes. They're not part of a global conspiracy. I think there are a lot of people in this country who oppose me on a lot of social issues, ranging from abortion to same-sex marriage. I don't think they are part of a giant conspiracy. I think there are people who can largely good faith disagree with me on these issues, which is why I believe in localism. It's why I believe in the sort of Montesquieu idea that people should live differently in different parts of the country. But if you are Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, you don't believe that. You believe that everyone who opposes you is motivated by the worst instincts among humanity, and also that these worst instincts have been organized and weaponized by people who are extremely wealthy. And because what you're about to hear from AOC right here is a full-fledged conspiracy theory. You hear a lot about the rights conspiracism. And there is conspiracism on the right, no doubt. But the conspiracism that is promoted by AOC here and just taken as for granted, nobody even comments on this, is truly wild. So after this is right after the Buffalo, New York shootings. This happened a couple of days ago. She went on her Instagram Live wearing this shirt that has a picture of an ice machine that says on it, abolish, that says abolish ice. Get it, get it? She also doesn't like ice because it's very cold, as we found out from another one of her Instagram lives. Not kidding. That was a thing that happened. So AOC decides that she's going to describe how the Buffalo, New York shooter is not an isolated incident, though statistically he is an isolated incident. Doesn't diminish the evil to point out that statistically speaking, this is an isolated incident in a country of 330 million people. She says it's not an isolated incident. This person's ideology is apparently, according to AOC, not rare. Not only is it not rare, it's well-organized and well-funded. So there is an att attempt, presumably according to AOC, at actual genocide against black people, well-funded and well-organized by the right wing, including people, ironically, like me and Candace Owens, a Jew and a black person. So that's, that's interesting. So here is AOC spewing out 
her conspiracy theory, complete with crazy eyes and air quotation marks. This is organized. He cites Tucker. These people have cited Tucker Carlson. They cited Ben Shapiro. They cited Candace Owens as justification for their murders. And these are efforts that are being funded. They're being funded by billionaires. They're being funded by oligarchs. They're being funded by networks like the Koch brothers and the Mercers. They've got money, they've got weapons, they've got propaganda, they've got, th this is an organized effort. She's Alex Jones. I'm sorry, she is, she's Alex Jones. She's Alex Jones to the left and she's celebrated, she's on magazine covers. And then you wonder why there's no unity. It's because everyone who opposes the agenda is apparently an enemy of the state. Enemy of the people, right, you might, you might say. So it is fascinating to hear people call for unity on the left while simultaneously feeding the alligator that is the AOCs of the world. But there is something in common, which again is the will to power, the real will to power, which is you give us the power and we will then do whatever we want to you. We will restructure the entire world system. This is what we'll do. Now, the problem is that Democrats, the left globally, they're running up against the fact that people are not into this sort of stuff. They're running up desperately against the fact that people have begun to buck this because as it turns out, people sort of want to rule their own lives. And so all of the propaganda efforts are just falling apart. And they can continue lying to you about how they are doing you a service by doing what they are doing, but nobody believes them any longer. And increasingly, Americans are not being distracted by ancillary issues, issues that may be important, but they're not willing to continue to sign a blank check for politicians to do what they please while undermining their own well-being. Perfect example of this is what is currently happening in Ukraine. So I'm a big backer of the United States supporting Ukraine with heavy military weaponry. I think it depletes Russian forces, which is good. I think that it prevents Russia from becoming more aggressive on its own borders. I think it acts as a signal to China that we will prevent them from doing the same with Taiwan. I think all of those are good things. I also think that the American people have to have some sort of end plan here. Because if there's no end plan, you can't expect the American people to continue funding this thing to the tune of $40 billion. You don't know where any of that money's going, by the way. And there's no watchdog on it. You can't expect the American people to do that while continuing to watch inflation rates rise and watch their economic futures collapse. They're not willing to do that. And that's not the American people not being sympathetic. The American people are, are overwhelmingly sympathetic to the Ukrainian military efforts against the Russians. What it means is that they want the government to walk and chew gum at the same time. You want to support the Ukrainians, that's fine. But we also aren't going to simply allow you to use what's happening in Ukraine as an excuse for your own bad governance, which is exactly what the Biden administration is doing. According to a new AP poll, Americans are now less supportive of punishing Russia for launching its invasion of Ukraine if it comes at the expense of the U.S. economy, a sign of rising anxiety over inflation and other challenges, according to a new poll. While broad support for U.S. sanctions has not faltered, the balance of opinion on prioritizing sanctions over the economy has shifted, according to the poll from the AP. Now 45% of U.S. adults say the nation's bigger priority should be sanctioning Russia as effectively as possible. Slightly more, 51%, say it should be limiting damage to the United States economy. In April, those figures were reversed. In March, shortly after Russia attacked Ukraine, a clear majority said the bigger priority should be sanctioning Russia as effectively as possible. In other words, the American people aren't willing to hear Joe Biden use Ukraine as an excuse for his bad economic policy. That's really what this is about. If they believe that Joe Biden was doing the best he could for the economy and wasn't just blaming Vladimir Putin for everything bad, they might be more willing to countenance the idea of sending billions of dollars to Ukraine. But when the billions, I mean, that's Joe Biden's fault. When Joe Biden says, we have to spend billions of dollars in Ukraine and sanction the Russians. And yes, it will hurt the American economy. And that's really what's costing us this. It's not true. What's really harming the American economy is not what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, which is fractional compared to what Joe Biden and the Federal Reserve have done to the United States economy. But if you connect those two issues, you can't then turn around and expect the American people not to connect those two issues. So meanwhile, you got Joe Biden out there saying, you know, his policies are going to continue to grow the economy. He's whistling past the graveyard. The, the notion that if we give him more control, things will be fixed is just silly. And the American people know it. This is going to be a haul. This is going to take some time. But in the meantime, it seems to me the best thing I can do, in addition to try to get the, uh, the, uh, the, the Middle Eastern countries, including uh, OPEC, to raise their production of oil and move along that route, is to see to it that we continue to grow our economy, create jobs. He's not creating jobs. All he can do is get out of the way. But he won't get out of the way. Because again, he is the one in control. I mean, he's literally saying out loud that while we are having massive gas costs that are impoverishing American families to the tune of sometimes hundreds of dollars per month, that 
you know, it's just the middle of a, a transition. It's just an incredible transition on Gaza. You know, it's a transitional phase, guys. We're going through an incredible transition that is taking place that God willing, when it's over, we'll be stronger and the world will be stronger and less relying on fossil fuels when this is over. Oh, we're transitioning to electric energy. Okay, great. Joe, again, the idea, you're, if only you guys had the willpower, he would get us out of all of this. Meanwhile, when it turns out that he's created the crisis, it's still not his fault. So the FDA under Joe Biden not only shut down a plant that there so far is not real evidence, produced the bacteria that led to the death of a couple of kids in Michigan. They shut down one of the big formula plants in the United States. And then they didn't alleviate any of the, any of the formula shortages by allowing the shipping of formula from Europe, right, by getting rid of FDA regulations. Instead, now Joe Biden is doing like emergency flights of formula. Quote, this is him tweeting. Folks, I'm excited to tell you that the first flight from Operation Fly Formula is loaded up with more than 70,000 pounds of infant formula about to land in Indiana, Manu. Our team is working around the clock to get safe formula to everyone who needs it. So first of all, I don't know who, who um, named Operation Fly Formula, but it sounds as it sounds gross. I'm not interested in my kid having fly formula. But in any case, 70,000 pounds of formula is like one day supply of formula. You know what you could do? Relieve the regulations. But um, now you have uh, Kamala Harris, who's saying that it's all their top priority. It's all their top, you know, they're solving all your problems, guys. You're just too ungrateful to, to acknowledge it. I know this is a scary situation for our parents and the caregivers who are taking care of these babies. Um, our administration is working around the clock to ensure that there is enough safe baby formula available for all who need it. And it is truly one of our highest priorities. Uh, it is one of their highest priorities. That's that's exciting. Babies are one. Of, by the way, Kamala Harris also noted that um, children of the community are also children of the community. She is, as we have suggested before, a predictive text mechanism come alive. She is just what what an what an unbelievable order Kamala Harris is. I can see why she was picked as vice president. Certainly not because she was a black woman, even though Joe Biden specifically said it's because she was a black woman. Probably it's because she's so skilled at, at all of this. Again, she she should be in control. We should give her more power, probably. You know, when we talk about our children, I know for this group, we all believe that when we talk about the children of the community, they are a children of the community. Oh, oh, well, here's the thing. Children are typically not children of the community primarily. They are children of their parents, which brings us to perhaps the biggest issue facing the Democrats electorally in the next few years. And that is that they have decided when you're an elitist, when you're a full scale elitist and you believe you should rule things top down, that means trumping all of the intervening institutions. When you believe that you are the great godsend, that you have the keys to unlock human prosperity and fairness and justice, all the intervening institutions that have their own visions of what that should look like have to go away. That includes the family, that includes local schooling, that includes your religious community, that includes your state. All of that stuff has to be trumped. It has to be trumped. And the leading indicator of this is when it comes to the social issue of boys being boys and girls being girls. Right. This is the issue. I really believe that this is going to be the death of the modern Democratic Party if they continue along these lines. Because it is one thing to say to people, you need to give us more power and we'll solve your economic problems. Increasingly, people don't like the sound of that. But the thing that people have never liked the sound of is we need to train your kids in a bunch of radical genderized nonsense because we, the elitists, understand that true human happiness lies only and solely in the fulfillment of the sexual impulse, which we will broaden out to include all human beings screwing all other human beings and identifying as everything up to and including fictional characters and cats, right? This is their idea of what is going to, uh, of, of what is going to solve the universe's problems. They keep running up against reality here and it's going to be very ugly for them. I think we've reached the breaking point on this. So the bleeding indicator of them reaching the breaking point is Bill Maher. So Bill Maher is like mainstream center left 1996 Democrat. That's what Bill Maher is. I mean, I've interviewed him. I know Bill, we're friendly. So Bill Maher on his show last week, he pointed out that the trans agenda to experiment on kids and to teach your kindergartners that they can be members of the opposite sex, that they magically can become members of the, that is a lie, it is not true, and it is a social contagion that is damaging children. Here's Bill Maher speaking what is just basic truth and would have been acknowledged as basic truth three years ago. But now your elitist class is telling you that if you say it, it means that you're a very bad person. Here's Bill Maher. The answer can always be that anyone from a marginalized community is automatically right, trump card, mic drop, end of discussion. 
because we're literally experimenting on children. Maybe that's why Sweden and Finland have stopped giving puberty blockers to kids, because we just don't know much about the long-term effects. Although common sense should tell you that when you reverse the course of raging hormones, there's going to be problems. We do know it hinders the development of bone density, which is kind of important if you like having a skeleton. <laughs> I mean, the, Bill Maher is saying this stuff. Again, you elitist, you can continue preaching what you're preaching, economically, socially, it ain't gonna hold. He continued along these lines, he got a little more graphic. If this spike in trans children is all natural, why is it regional? Either Ohio is shaming them or California is creating them. If we can't admit that in certain enclaves there is some level of trendiness to the idea of being anything other than straight, then this is not a serious science-based discussion. It's a blow being struck in the culture wars using children as cannon fodder. I don't understand parents who won't let their nine-year-old walk to the corner without a helmet, an EpiPen, and a GPS tracker. <laughs> And God forbid their lips touch dairy. But hormone blockers and genital surgery, fine. <laughs> Talk about a nut allergy. Maybe childhood makes you sad sometimes, and there are other solutions besides hand me the d saw. If kids knew what they wanted to be at age eight, the world would be filled with cowboys and princesses. Correct. Correct. But the elitists in our society have decided that they, it, the only thing separating us from gender happiness is you handing them power. It's the will's power, which is why you need, for example, trans teachers saying that they get validation from three-year-olds. This is from libs of, courtesy of libs of TikTok. We're seeing more and more videos like this on TikTok, which of course is the repository. It's, it's an online mental asylum. And that's all it is. So here, here, is a, here is a person explaining that he gets his validation from a bunch of three-year-olds. And by he, I mean she. So today was full of little happy gender euphoria moments. I got called Mr. Micah a lot today well, completely femme. And that was really heartwarming that the kids just got it. But my favorite reaction, and so, it sums me up so well, I feel like, is uh, I was in a new classroom and I took off my mask to blow my nose and I just hear a kid loudly whisper, oh, she's a boy. And I was like, yeah, you got it, kid. You totally got it. These are three-year-olds that this person is talking about. Most people are bucking against this, which is why you are seeing, as you should, major American companies, which have kind of in covert fashion backed this agenda because they've been told by the elitists, they are the elitists, right? Stakeholder capitalism, that's the only reason State Farm is endorsing gender theory, okay? Because they, the stakeholders, like Klaus Schwab talks about, the stakeholders, the elitists in our society, they've decided they get to reshape society through the will to power. And so now people are saying no, and now they're backing off, as they should if they are smart. According to the Washington Examiner, the insurance company State Farm is discontinuing its support for the controversial Gender Cool project amid backlash following reports the company was donating books about transgender issues targeted at five-year-olds to schools. State Farm's support of a philanthropic program, Gender Cool, has been the subject of news and customer inquiries, the, customers, the company said in a statement. This program that included books about gender identity was intended to promote inclusivity. Conversations about gender and identity should happen at home with parents. We don't support required curriculum in schools on these topics. We support organizations providing resources for parents to have these conversations. We no longer support the program allowing for distribution of books in schools. We'll continue to explore how we can support organizations that provide tools and resources that align with our commitment to diversity and inclusion, which of course are the priorities of Klaus Schwab. He talks about them openly when it comes to stakeholder capitalism. But here's the thing. No, the answer is no. You can continue down this path. And by the way, a myriad of companies have decided that they wish to continue down this path, they will pay the price. It's not just all, it's not just State Farm. All state has done this. There are a bunch of major American companies that have nothing to do with gender theory. All state. These are car insurance companies, for God's sake. They sell house insurance and they are telling your kids that they can be girls. Continue if the elitists continue down this path, there will be pop. You wonder why populism is rising? It's because you guys overreached. It's because you decided that you were in control of systems that you didn't create and didn't control, and now you want control of them. And the people of America, and by the way, all over the world are saying no. That's likely to have some deleterious effects because when you seize control of good systems and then you attempt to twist the systems, sometimes the opposition takes the form not just to you, but of the entire system. And that's a problem. When you pervert the system, when you say what we're doing is stakeholder capitalism, then people say, we're not just going to oppose stakeholder capitalism. We're going to oppose capitalism broad writ. That's a problem. But the attempt to wrest power away from the people who say that they ought to control you, the people who say 
that they ought to build the future, that is not misbegotten. It is very, it is widely appropriate at this point. In fact, it's beyond the point where it became appropriate. We're several decades beyond that. All right, we'll be back here later today with additional content. In the meantime, go check out one of our newest podcasts, Morning Wire. Today's episode is available right now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to tune in. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Help spread the word about The Ben Shapiro Show by giving us a five-star review and sharing the show with a friend. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out some of our other Daily Wire shows. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Bradford Carrington, executive producer Jeremy Boring, supervising producer Mathis Glover, production manager Pavel Wydowski, associate producer Savannah Dominguez-Morris, editor Adam Saievitz, audio mixer Mike Coromina, hair and makeup artist and wardrobe Fabiola Cristina, production coordinator Jessica Kranz. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. John Bickley here, Daily Wire Editor-in-Chief. Wake up every morning with our show, Morning Wire, where we bring you all the news that you need to know in 15 minutes or less. Join me and my co-host, Georgia Howe, for daily coverage of all the biggest stories on Morning Wire. Morning Wire. 